Hey guys, welcome back to the Prehistoric Life Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Crawford, and today we are having another interview with Rex Creek Discoveries. That's their Instagram right there, so would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Riley Lawson. Um, I work out of uh, Hot Springs, South Dakota. Um, I focus on the Hell Creek Formation um, in South Dakota, the Lance Creek Formation in Wyoming. And I also dabble in a little bit of mammal fossils in the White River Formation as well. I mean, it sounds like you have a lot of different time periods there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much just local stuff, you know. There's a lot of guys who dig all around the country in different different states, but I'm kind of just in this little Black Hills sub-region. I mean, it's fun either way. I mean, yeah. So, the basic question that I pretty much start every podcast off with is, what is your favorite dinosaur? Well... That's a tough one because as a, you know, a field paleontologist, someone who spends a lot of time out in the field, probably the best thing you can find is a T-Rex or anything T-Rex related. Um, but if you're, t- if I'm just talking my favorite dinosaur in general, um, it, it might have to be the Achiroraptor out of the Hell Creek Formation. It's a, it's a dromaeosaurid, um, and not much is known about it. There have only been um, Isolated discoveries. I know uh, Clayton Phipps found a maxilla. Um, that was, and I think the Chiroraptor is actually dis- or, uh, the Chiroraptor was described based off of that. So, you know, and and I personally have found a about three inch killing claw from an Chiroraptor at one of my sites. So it's just kind of one of those dinosaurs where not much is known about it, and um, you know. It's kind of one of those. So it's exciting to basically find anything about it. Yes. Yeah. So would you like to just talk on what you do? I mean. Yeah. So um, so I am basically exclusively in the field. You know, I don't do research or any of that kind of stuff. I just I spend my time out there discovering and quarrying some different sites and, you know, trying to find something, something brand new. It's kind of always been the goal. I mean, that's a very fair goal. I mean. Yeah. And uh, I also, as you can see in the backdrop, I'm at a museum. This is the World Fossil Finder Museum in Hot Springs, South Dakota. Um, I, I was the curator here for about three and a half years. And before that, I, I helped build and design most of the uh, most of the exhibits here. And so... Now I'm basically just a fellow here. I kind of hop in and out and yeah, I, I, I advise on a few things here and there, but yeah, currently there's a new curator, Sean Larson, and he's doing a really good job here. So see, you got a pretty big fossil behind you. Yeah. So this, this is kind of the, um, the Magnus of this guy. Um, this is a Tylosaur. The Tylosaur. It was found um, found near Edgemont, South Dakota. Um, it's it's very complete, and it, the skull is actually um, 
about 98% complete. It's just missing one cheekbone. But as you can see, it's pretty enormous. Five feet long tall. That thing is. Yeah, so that, that was a pretty cool project to work on. Um, I helped. I did a lot of the uh, grunt work, cleaning off the ribs and cleaning some vertebrae. And we had a guy who's done a lot of big time dinosaur work, Eric Bracapi. He came in and did the uh, did the mount and a lot of the restoration on it. But yeah, I'm able to say that I scraped away on the ribs for about six months. <laughs> see, probably had a lot of them, and they were really big. So I can yes. see that. Yeah, and fossils out of the um, out of the Pierre Shale. They uh, they typically the bone isn't that solid all the time, um, and uh, so that so you know that means. Preparation is always a little more difficult when the bone isn't super solid. Um, and, uh, with this one in particular, it had a, a layer of gypsum selenite surrounding the bones, um, which, as you know, is literally a crystal. And so, so the gypsum selenite was harder than the inside of the bone. Um, and so that made for a very unique preparation. It's not like... You know, cleaning dinosaur bones can be pretty easy. Sometimes you just kind of hit it with some really hardcore tools and clean her off. Dirt and it falls off sometimes. Yeah, somewhat. Um, but with this guy, you literally had to go at it with razor blades and dremels, and you still have to microblast it here and there. But um, yeah, it was quite the difficult preparation. Yeah, I mean that seems like it would be a very unique preparation that doesn't <laughs> happen a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I can only imagine like just basically base, not owning the museum, but just curating it. That would seem so fun. Yes, it, it was a very fun time. And I learned a lot, you know, because I, I don't have a degree in paleontology. So I, I kind of just, um, you know, I, I was making a name for myself, making some pretty good discoveries. And, and that's how I got hooked up with Frank. Um, and Frank was just at a point in his life where he moved up here from Florida um, to start, you know, some new things and, and the things just worked out. And, you know, I started building a museum he hired me on to build and design it. And then kind of as time went, I became a curator and yeah, worked out well. So yeah, I mean, connections paid half, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Literally and metaphorically. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, so now you just mostly work in the field? Yes, I'm, I'm working in the field with my, um, my company, Rex Creek Discoveries. And I also have um, two other part-time businesses, L&L Paleontology and Dakota Valley Paleontology, where I work on those with um, partners. So you said that you mainly deal with like mammals and the Hell Creek Formation, and there was one other formation that I'm just blanking on right now. The Lance Creek. The Lance Creek. Um, so those are fairly different time periods. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I guess which one is your favorite one to look at mostly? Um. So, so the Hell Creek Formation and the Lance Creek Formation, um, they were deposited at a very similar time period, um, and therefore you get basically the same dinosaurs. Um, 
late Cretaceous, you know, T-Rex, Triceratops, Edmontosaurus. Um, but, you know, they're, they're deposited on either side of the Black Hills. So they're their own unique, they have their own unique makeups. Um, that's kind of a tough one. I, the, the Lance Creek Formation, it has a lot more massive sandstones. It's a lot thicker. Um, so, it, so therefore, it produces, like, very interesting-looking badlands with toadstools and a lot of wind-carved features. Um, and so that's, that's fun exploring that kind of stuff because it, it just looks like nothing else, you know. Um, the, the fossils are a little sparse in the Lance Creek Formation, um, but when you get into the Hell Creek Formation of South Dakota, you know, the, it, it's out in the prairie. So there's no, you know, there's no massive buttes and, uh, you know, like mesas and plateaus. It's just kind of like little draws that cut through the prairie. Um, but the fossils in the Hell Creek Formation of South Dakota are just very prevalent. Um, so I, I would probably lean towards the Hell Creek Formation of South Dakota. Um, just better chance of discovery, I think. I mean, that's fair enough. I mean, if you're going out looking for fossils, you don't want to look where they won't be. So yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I'm sure you found a lot of crazy things just out in the field. Yeah. Yeah. There have been a few discoveries over the years. I mean, these creatures, we don't really have a hundred percent idea of what they were really like. I mean, we only really have theories and estimates. So I, I could only imagine like discovering something. Yeah. Yeah. When you find a bone, you know, it's, you don't automatically know what it is right away. Um, as you kind of hunt these formations, um, you kind of get the population or the, um, you know, what could be there. So, you know, there's only, you know, 10, 12 dinosaurs that you could feasibly find in these formations. So you find something and you go through the process of elimination of what it could be. Um, you need to know some anatomy that helps out big time. Um, I could imagine. Yeah. So I know that in the Hell Creek Formation, there are different populations of dinosaurs in different areas. So what kind of dinosaurs and creatures are most prevalent in the area that you tend to stick to? Um, so one of my areas that I dig is near a town called Bape, South Dakota. Um, and that's known as one of the, you know, there's a lot of places that claim to be the T-Rex capital of the world. Um, and faith is one of them. And, you know, there have been a lot of discoveries that back that up. Um, there have been several T-Rexes found within a 20 mile radius of where I dig. Um, well, what was your question again on that? So what kind of like, oh, dinosaurs and creatures kind of dinosaurs. are in the prevalent? Yeah. So there's, um, you find a lot of admonosaurs, um, hadrosaurs, uh, there's some, Triceratops that have been discovered out there. Um, there is a, a really well-known site about like 15 miles from where I dig called the Ruth Mason Quarry. Um, and that was first discovered by Pete Larson. Well, it was actually discovered by Ruth Mason, the landowner, but um, Pete Larson and Black Hills Institute quarried that site for years and years, decades. And, and they found thousands and thousands of 
hadrosaur bones. And, and from what I know, nothing else. I believe it, it was all hadrosaurs of different ages. Um, and they were all deposited in a you know three foot thick band of clay. Um, yeah, so, so that possibly leads to the theory that maybe there was like a massive flood that occurred in this um, prehistoric river. Um, but yeah, so you find you find a lot of those guys around there might be related. I mean, you need a lot of herbivores to feed all the big carnivores. If you have more carnivores and populations of herbivores tend to go down and everything dies. So I can see a lot of hadrosaurs and things like that, whatnot. I mean, yeah, and that's something kind of interesting about the um, the late Hell Creek formation. Um, you know, dinosaurs were going through a very interesting time in their evolution where you had the biggest or one of the biggest theropods of all time, T-Rex, who had some really unique features too, like, you know, very um, blunt teeth, you know, very large features, like a pit bull type head. You know, you compare a T-Rex to like a um, an Acrocanthosaurus or a Giganotosaurus, and you know, you look at the profile and they're similar. You know, you look at the bodies and they're similar, but when you really look at the bones and the mass of the bones and the mass of the skull, T-Rex is just like a freak of nature. It, it's a very unique build. Yes, yes. And, and with that, you know, at the time, they also had the biggest hadrosaur that ever lived in Montosaurus. Um, so it, it's a weird time in dinosaur evolution right at the end of the Cretaceous. You know. I mean, I've been looking at some dinosaur bite force studies, and it seems like the more prevalent the arms are, the, the like, I don't want to say weaker because they still had a really powerful bite force, but yeah. on the lesser end of the bite force it had. So I feel like T-Rex kind of out evolved its arms yeah and it and also i mean head is huge i mean t-rex head is huge mm -hmm. so i mean there's a lot of space for muscle and the jaws for basically that strong bite force and it would weigh a lot since it was so big so i mean i guess if it did have arms it would just fall forward on its face yeah it was very reliant on its head that's for sure I mean, a powerful bite force probably means that it was a very predatory dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I think, personally. Yeah. So, touching on that, do you think that there is a chance that T-Rex was a scavenger? Um, I, I think that they did scavenge. Um, you know, their, their teeth are perfect for picking things apart um but you know for for a creature to be an exclusive scavenger that's kind of a stretch i think um you know there's no there's no creatures in the world nowadays that are a apex predator that exclusively scavenge so you know and along with that like what other animal would take down the baby hadrosaurs in hell creek you know there's decoderaptor which which was big, but, and they, of course, if they were a tr true pack predator, they could have taken down groups, but 
Um, no, I, I think there was so much, there was so much meat at the time, you know, with these hadrosaurs and like the Ruth Mason quarry where it's a single event and they, they have thousands of individuals that are preserved. Um, you know, I think there's just too much opportunity for predation there. So, I, I mean, yeah, there's, I feel like the smaller the dinosaur in like the carnivore family, not really the herbivore family, but the smaller the carnivore, the more of a scavenger it is. Mm -hmm. So T-Rex probably did do more hunting, but if it came down to it, it probably would scavenge because it needs to survive somehow. But something like Compsognathus or Archaeopteryx probably did more scavenging than active hunting. Yeah. Yeah, you'd think so. You know, or even those little mammals, like, running around, that would be a pretty good prey option for, you know, one of those dromaeosaurids sitting up in a tree. I mean... Or even going after the babies, and, yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of... Uh, that's why Comsignathus was thought to have, like, a longer head, like a snout kind of thing, more mm -hmm. narrow snout, so it could reach into burrows and steal eggs and tiny mammals i mean and that is an evolutionary trait and that makes a lot of sense that it would be like that yeah versus yep. something like carnotaurus or t-rex where it's got the big old bulky head with a more rounded snout i mean yeah i don't i don't see t-rex sticking its head in a tiny weasel burrow to try to no. get it. No, they're they might be a little more intentional with their their prey choices. I mean, and that that was also something. So, one of the most famous dinosaur movies is Jurassic Park, and they always show the T Rex hunting like humans, kind of chasing after humans. But I really feel like it wouldn't do that. Yeah, like yeah, actively, that's... actively hunt that small of prey. Yeah, you're you're right, and you know with um, batteries. Sorry, I gotta make sure my batteries. Yeah, you know they probably wouldn't go after the the young ones like that, but um, yeah. So like you know with um. With lions, I like to look at you know modern animals as kind of a a lesson on maybe how these prehistoric predators you know live. They you know they'll go after pretty big um, water buffalo sometimes, but typically they're selecting the weaker one or maybe the one that's by itself, a little slower. Um, so yeah, no, I think there's a lot of insight that you can gain from just looking at how modern creatures per day because you know you, you can't compare a t-rex to even though its closest living relative is like an ostrich you, there's nothing to compare there really there really isn't the, no. it's also just kind of difficult in general because we don't really have anything that's like a dinosaur anymore yeah because people are like oh birds are dinosaur like but it's like I don't look at an eagle and go, that's how a T-Rex hunted. Yeah. Like, 
it's, yeah, it's related to it, but they don't act the same. Yeah, you got to look at their niches. You know how, like what, you know, if apex predator versus an eagle, which is, you know, and they're an apex predator in their own right, but you can't really compare. It's very different. I mean, I mean, like, even with like your example, a lion. A lion is still very different to a T-Rex, but some tactics would probably be carried over through generations of whatever strange evolution. Yeah. At the end of the day, a T-Rex probably didn't hunt in as big as a pride as a lion, so there would be different tactics used. But certain things like targeting the weak and the maybe the elderly and the slower – or possibly even the younger in the pack would make sense. Yeah. But the way they brought it down would be so vastly different. Yes. It's hard yeah. to – that's part of the intrigue of dinosaurs. I mean, we don't really have this 100% clue because, like, a lion is – all right, we'll send some researchers to Africa to go watch some lions. But, mm-hmm. like, how did T-Rex hunt? You can't send researchers anywhere to go watch a T-Rex. Yeah. Yeah, so, there's a lot more to guess. Guess on. I mean, it's a lot of guesswork. We might even figure out that somehow T Rex jumped on its prey the next forty years from now, and that might right. be some weird theory that somebody brings up. I mean, yeah, I, I do like the. Uh, have you heard the theory how T Rex may have like used its um, arms as like meat hooks and then kind of like ripped, ripped at the animal with its feet? It's. It's a really interesting idea. I mean, I've never really thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, because I forget which... Um, I, I believe it's some kind of bird that it, it'll like it'll hold something down with its beak, and then it'll rip at it with its feet. I think that's... Owl, owls do that, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of a, a trait that might be kind of like... It might emerge... You know, it may have been lost for a long time because, you know, traits pop back up. That's just kind of the way evolution works. But, yeah, it keeps rearing its head throughout time. I mean, I saw a study recently about uh, Allosaurus and how it hunted kind of like that. It would hold something down with its foot and then basically just tear at it while it's still alive. I mean, yeah, because <laughs> a, a lot of imagery shows that, like, these dinosaurs would like kill their prey completely, then start to eat them. But I feel like a lot of dinosaurs probably didn't have the idea of mercy. Yeah. A lot of dinosaurs probably just ate their prey alive. Mm-hmm. That's just how it is. I mean, I, I could see a T-Rex just like, Injuring Edmontosaur enough till it can't really fight back and it's exhausted and slowly dying from like blood loss. And then it's just like, there's no point in killing it and wasting energy there. So I might as well just start eating. Yeah. No, they, they are not, they're not butchers. That's for sure. They're, they're a little more brutal about it. A lot more brutal. I mean, uh, it's just, I mean, it's the way it, it's how the uh, animal kingdom works. A lot of, I mean, humans are very unique in the idea of we use mercy. 
I mean, yeah. Oh, uh, we we tend to kill our animals, then chop them up and eat them. Mm-hmm. No other animal really does that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, they kill their animal enough till it can't move, and then it, and then they eat it. So, and I mean, I uh, they shed their teeth like sharks. So, mm-hmm. I'm sure, like, I'm sure there's somewhere where it, like a lot of T Rex just go to shed their teeth. There might be some kind of unique thing like that. Do you think they could have done that with like mark their territory somehow? Hmm. That is an interesting theory. Um, I do have a, I do have a site in South Dakota where I pull out a lot of T-Rex teeth um, from all different ages of creatures. It's a, it's a micro channel deposit. So um, I'm essentially strip mining it. I'm following the lens of gravel um, into the hill. Um, and it, there is a, a strange amount of T-Rex teeth there. When you like look at all the other bones, you know, I, I find some duckbill bones, a few triceratops here and there, but it is strange how many T-Rex teeth are in this site. Because I feel like big predators like that wouldn't do a lot of migrating if they have a steady food and water supply in one yeah. area. Yeah, predators are a different story. They might They might kind of stay local, like you're saying. I mean, the herbivores might go off, but then more like – if the Montasaur leave because they got to go to their breeding ground or go somewhere else to do whatever they do. I mean, a new herd might come into the area. There's no reason for the T-Rex to follow the old herd. I mean, mm-hmm. just yeah. stay with the new herd. So they probably have very defined territory mm-hmm. that they mark. And I mean – if their teeth fall out about it, I'm sure they were somewhat aware enough to realize that they do lose their teeth. And I mean, I'm sure they did somehow do that. That is a possibility that they could have marked their territory with their teeth. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, it's kind of touching back on the thing you were saying, like the idea of mercy. Um, And that's, that's more of like a mammal thing, I believe. Because, you know, like mammals, once we get our adult teeth, there's no replacing them. Um, And if you look at, like, saber cats, you know, they had to be very selective with their prey, how they bit their prey. Um, You know, they'd go for the throat. They'd go for the kill. Um, And, and, you know, so even there, like, that might be kind of a, a contorted view of mercy. Like, they're going for the kill because it's less dangerous for them. Um... And, and, and like you were saying with the, you know, theropod dinosaurs, they, they shed their teeth like sharks. So I think you could kind of look at their predator instinct, like the way a shark goes after something. Like they're just biting anything they can bite, tearing anything they can tear. And they're not too worried about their teeth because they replace them. They don't have to protect their teeth. They're not as worried about, so like, like you're saying, the Smilodon evolved to be very – what would be the right word? Particular. Particular. Selective. Yeah. It, it evolved very specific traits for very specific prey. Mm-hmm. It evolved to have long fangs for, like, the jugular – the thick jugular of, like, megafauna. Yeah. 
so a Smilodon is not going for the back. It's going for the neck to kind of very brutally, once you start thinking about it, basically pierce holes into the neck and kind of drown its prey in its own blood until yeah. it's dead. It can't breathe. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, dinosaurs probably didn't – things like T-Rex were probably just like – Bite! Oh no, some teeth came out. Better keep biting at this thing until it falls over. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would lean towards that as well. Cause a lot of mammals, there are very few mammals that I've seen that are like exclusively carnivorous. A lot of them can eat plants and berries and things like that. I mean, mm-hmm. they tend to have molars and then fangs and then other parts of like the teeth and cats are one of those very rare families that are specifically like mostly carnivore yeah like hyper carnivores so and i've like you can definitely tell that like a t-rex it it was exclusively carnivorous yeah that's for sure if it did eat plants it was very you and it would have been for like probably like fiber or something yeah yeah fiber some type of like medicinal trait maybe or i mean dogs like canines they tend to be very carnivorous too but they also like eat grass and things whenever their stomach is upset so Mm -hmm. but you can also see that there's like molars that are very look like they're grindy yeah multi-use kind of thing but they also have the canines for biting on the prey. But uh, a lot, a lot of theropod dinosaurs, like this dromaeosaur jaw I have here. Oh, there's, yeah. there's not any area for like molders. Yeah, that's fairly specialized. It it is very specialized to have a lot of muscle for the bite force and very sharp teeth for just. Latching in the prey and basically holding it down until it stops moving. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's something that a mammal's adapted to. Because they were like, oh, well, if we're only carnivorous, then what happens if something happens to all the prey? Oh, then we have to start eating plants too. And then you can actually survive off of that for a short while until the prey comes back. And that that is a very mammal thing i mean yes are like the one of the largest mammal uh like carnivores mm-hmm. uh, land carnivores. and they eat fruits berries and like fish and things like that so yeah that's a good example of one of those kind of all-encompassing creatures I feel like marine creatures are also very different in that because there's not a lot of sea light, like sea plant that can sustain large creatures like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the marine creatures are very interesting too. And we got a lot of those out here in South Dakota in the pier shales. Um, we actually have like four different layers of shale that produce fossils out here surrounding the Black Hills. Um, yeah, and one of the one of the more interesting creatures out of the Pierre Shale is the uh, um, Archelon, you know, the giant turtle. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so the the holotype for that was actually discovered. I believe it was discovered near Buffalo Gap, South Dakota, but I might be wrong. Um, but yeah, there there have been many big Archelon discoveries right around here. And that definitely is something that those marine predators adapted to. I mean, if there were a lot of giant turtles like that, their jaws would have been stronger, their teeth would have been sharper. Mm -hmm. And it's because they got to get through the hard shell. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's how evolution works. I mean, if there's a lot of turtle to feed on, you're not going to get weaker jaws and duller teeth. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's just how that basically goes on. I mean, that's just part of how life works. I mean, it's, it's a very unique process that. And like the time periods, I, I love looking at like the time periods because it's very hard to comprehend because you can say 145 million years. There's nothing really to like compare that to. Yeah. There's no set thing to like compare that to. So you don't really get that idea of comprehension where it's like, oh, well, this dinosaur evolved over a process of five million years. You're like, five doesn't sound like a lot, but then you add million to it. You're mm -hmm. like, well, that's a really long time. Yeah, that is quite a bit of time. It's What makes these creatures so unique is that they had so long to evolve into existence and then keep evolving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, evolution is a very interesting thing how you know, it, it takes it takes a long time to kind of like get your scope of evolution because people like to look at evolution like it happens in like a static environment, you know. But truly, the one thing that drives evolution is the changing of the environment, you know, Mother Earth. Because um, you know, if if it was a static environment, there would be just it would just be ran by car like the greatest predators of all time, like the biggest herbivores of all time you know but truly what drives things is is the change and sometimes you know when the environment goes to crap everything dies it's the it's the weakest animals that survive because you know the variables have changed i mean it, it's kind of why dinosaurs didn't just evolve back into existence yeah yep they were on their straight path and and that was with their perfect environment. And when, and when that changed, they couldn't adapt. I mean, the environment nowadays is like there's – what is it? The carbon level is six times less than it was in the Mesozoic era. So yeah, they really can't evolve back into – Yeah. Yeah, that would require some pretty drastic changes. That's for sure. You'd have to build like a special building and then put like a bunch of – chickens or something in it and then leave it for a couple million years yeah the the, the malinkovich cycles would probably have to stop and all the ice caps would have to permanently go away for, for that to happen and i mean that's why the intrigue is there i mean you have to figure out what changed because 
there are definitely vast differences between the Cretaceous, the Jurassic, and the Triassic. Mm-hmm. And it's fun to look at what changed in the environment to make these creatures come into existence. And so, like, a lot of sauropods were in the Jurassic period. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of sauropods in the Jurassic period. They're very, very few in the Cretaceous. I won't say none because there were still, like, some. But yeah, what happened to make sauropods kind of stop evolving? Dude, yeah, that, that is a very interesting thing that you're wanting, that you're asking. And there is um, so in the Black Hills, we have, you know, the Black Hills are an, are an igneous uplift, and they're surrounded with these um, kind of like floodplain deposits, the Hell Creek Formation, Lance Creek, and then later on the White River Formation. Um, but surrounding or making up the hogback of the Black Hills are a few Cretaceous layers, like early Cretaceous. Um, there's one of them down here in the southern Black Hills called the Fall River Formation and the uh, Chilson Formation. Um, and there have actually been some discoveries lately in the past few years where they found some of the last sauropods to ever live in North America um, in some of these layers. And I, I believe that the Chilson Formation is like 93 million years, they estimate. Um, I mean... Yeah, it's, that's still like uh, late Cretaceous period. So yeah, yeah. Uh, so like, and there's still a couple million years between that and the KT extinction. Yeah, yeah, so, and you know the environment. They always say that Cretaceous is the biggest time period. You know, it has the most range. So uh, I feel like it needs to get broken up a few more times, kind of based on the environmental differences, but. Yeah, I, I mean, the the Jurassic and the Triassic have an early, late, and middle, but the Cretaceous doesn't, which is kind of weird to me. Yeah, and you know, maybe it's just our current understanding of things. Like, we don't understand it that well, and that's why it's just grouped together at the moment. I mean, that's... I mean, we've been going on the same standard since, like, 18-something, so... Yeah. And and very few changes have been added to it. I say very few, but it was actually like a lot. So yeah, yeah. But I mean, something clearly happened to make sauropods stop being the massive creatures that they are mm-hmm. and evolve back into something maybe not necessarily smaller, but well, compared to a sauropod, everything's smaller, but yeah. I mean, yeah, and like basically they just couldn't survive, at least in North America. In in uh in South America they, they persisted for quite a while. Because it was an isolated continent, you know. But. It was a very isolated continent continent. Yeah. So and actually the little bridge between like Latin America, it's fairly new, isn't it? Yeah, the Isthmus of Panama that, that sealed up during the Pliocene, I believe. So I'm sure it was a very unique circumstance Mm -hmm. that opened that up to let things come into South and North America. I mean, yeah, Yeah. almost like the uh, 
land bridge between Siberia and North America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. that really drove a lot of change. I mean, that's one of the most infamous things for like creatures coming into America and spreading out in America. So, mm-hmm. and also, I mean, you think about that Mexico Gulf area. I mean, that's where the asteroid supposedly hit in that area. So I could see that maybe not the best preserved area. Yeah. Yeah, that's – and that's another thing, like pres- preservation bias. You know, there's j- – just look at, um, you know, a- anywhere. Where do you live? I, I mean, I live in South Carolina, so. Yeah, so look at South Carolina. There's – you know, you got you got a lot of rivers where de- deposition is occurring, um, but then you, you guys also have a little bit of the Appalachians, right? Yeah. So so there's there's really no deposition occurring there besides some isolated valleys, um, and and if you look at creatures that live exclusively in the Appalachians, they're not going to be preserved as well as the creatures that live down in the coastal plains, where they're getting buried in river sediments. And, so there's always that preservation bias there. I mean, also like where I live, South Carolina, North Carolina, down to like Florida used to be an ocean. Yeah. So we don't get a lot of the big sauropods and theropods and hadrosaurs. I think we have a hadrosaur like really far north in South Carolina. Sure. But that's probably like a very rare thing. But yeah. so we get a lot of things like shark teeth and dolphin teeth and mosasaurus teeth and anamites and trilobites and ocean dwelling creatures, mm-hmm. ancient squids. We get a lot of that, and that is preservation bias. I mean, you're not going to find dinosaurs where there weren't dinosaurs. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you wouldn't <laughs> find dinosaurs where they were incinerated. So, I mean, a giant rock falls on them. I mean, uh, right next to that impact, I would imagine that a lot of damage was caused, and a lot of the dinosaurs in that area were a little or less preserved than the other side of the world, like China or something. Yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting thing to think about. Like, you know, what the animals living in modern day Mexico, the dinosaurs living in modern day Mexico what they even could have been at the time because you know you'd probably have to go 500 miles inland to find the record of that away from the blast site you know because i mean once you get far enough away the only real problem is like ash in the sky i mean like other rubble kind of falling on the animal but there is like definitely a radius where a that crushes the creature b it's coming in thousands of miles an hour into the mm-hmm. atmosphere, so there's going to be fire and what knows basically incinerating the creature i mean yeah yeah that's a hard force to even fathom you know it's such a one-off idea that i mean it, it basically is the only real account of that so. yeah yeah, there's not many instances of that happening. And plus, you got to think of the massive tsunami that came, too. I mean, yeah, that, that 
and that that did help preserve probably a lot of creatures. Yeah. Because, I mean, it would wash them away, wash them onto the bottom of the ocean, and over millions of years, I mean, tectonic plates, too, they will slide apart, and it'll bring some onto land, and, I I mean, the world's not the same it was, uh, the world is not the same way it was millions of years ago. Mm -hmm. It's constantly changing. Yeah. And... I mean, if you even, like, look at a map of, like, South America and Africa, it looks like they just kind of clip together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- yeah, that's a funny thing because, you know, before um, before the idea of plate tectonics was truly accepted, you know, little kids would say to their moms, you know, Mom, doesn't it look like South America and Africa to go to go together? And they'd just be like, oh, kids, you know, silly, silly kids. Yeah. <laughs> Now it's like, oh, well, they're on tectonic plates that actually used to be together. Yeah, they do clip together. Or they did clip together. <laughs> they, yeah, they literally did clip together. <laughs> that was a thing that happened. <laughs> and that also is an interesting idea. I mean, whenever Pangea was a thing, you get a vast variety, variety of life. And the most famous example I can think of is Iguanodon. You find Iguanodon like everywhere yeah they found it in europe north america they found some in south america i think they found one in australia too if i'm not mistaken Mm -hmm. so i mean clearly there's a time where it's like since it was all together several species just kind of spread out everywhere yeah yeah and and there's a there's actually an iguanodon that was found in the black hills too it's called dakotadon um and it was found in one of those like sandstone hogback layers too, early Cretaceous. And that also is reservation bias. Yeah. I mean, you get all the plate, all the what are they called continents together because they all kind of at one point blended together, and I mean. At that point in time, whenever that was like that, species definitely did go everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that definitely also does affect later dinosaurs because, I mean, the Cretaceous period, the Earth was looking a lot more like modern Earth that we know it, but it was not the same. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean there. The continents were, the continents were starting to split apart. They're starting to drift. There were still parts of the world covered up by ocean, so there's that. But whenever it isolated those creatures, you can definitely tell that they went on their own evolutionary paths due to the environment. So, and I do feel like that's why you find similar hadrosaurs all over the world, but they're yet they're all the species are so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a very interesting kind of like, you know, linear feature where you can you can see all these creatures that coexisted when the continents were closer together. And as the continents drifted, you know, natural selection occurred and, you know, the creatures also drifted. So, I mean, 
yeah, I mean, I'm sure natural predators were cut off from their prey. So, I mean, they had to find new prey. They had to evolve to hunt that prey. And that just basically becomes a new species. So, as prey evolves to defend itself, hide from, run from, even face against predators, the predator has to evolve to continuously take down the prey. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's why the Cretaceous is because the Jurassic, a lot of the creatures look very I don't want to say similar because there were a lot of unique creatures, but they had like a very familiar architect between all of them. Yeah. That makes sense. But the Cretaceous period, there were a lot more different unique species. Mm-hmm than the jurassic and that definitely is part of that so i feel like that's definitely part of that and i mean it's why you find all different types of tyrannosaurids like you have like gorgosaurus you have albertosaurus tarbosaurus and then you have like tyrannosaurus yet they're all different Mm-hmm. And it's because they're from different parts of the world, we have different prey, and that's def. I feel like that's definitely why there are different ceratopsians. I mean, different parts of the world, different environments, different needs. That's why it's not just triceratops. Yes, yeah, that is a very interesting thing. Different, different tyrannosaurids, different ceratopsians. How they all kind of differentiated towards that Cretaceous time block i mean you can definitely trace them you can probably trace them back to one individual species where you're like oh well this is the father of all tyrannosaurids and you can see where it was split off and changed to fit australia it grew smaller because creatures there grew smaller because they didn't have as much plant life or whatever i mean Mm -hmm. it's you don't need to be and that could have been why sauropods kind of evolved out of existence in North America. Maybe something happened that we're not seeing where a lot of plant life died off. And so it couldn't sustain being this massive creature. So then they had to sh- shrink into something else. And as they did, predators changed to hunt them and they adapted into specific species, uh, specific features to defend against the predators. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those really early Cretaceous sauropods are very interesting to me. And that, and that's so, that's part of the reason why I want to find, you know, an early Cretaceous sauropod around the Black Hills. There's, um, there's a lot of public land out here. Um, so you can go out and look for the fossils. You just can't touch them or excavate them or disturb them in any way. Um, but so these canyons out here, they're very, they're very desolate, isolated. There's not many trails running through them. Um, and so therefore there's, there hasn't really been that much research into these formations in the foothills of the Black Hills. Um, and a couple of buddies and, or myself and a few buddies, we go out a few times a year backpacking through some of these almost forgotten canyons because, you know, like I said, there's no trail systems. There's no, you know, there's not like Custer State Park where that's all the tourists go. Like, so we go out and we um we camp. You know, we're we're out there to have a good time, but 
we're also kind of hoping that we come up on a cliff face with a you know a, a brand new dinosaur exposed because there there is a good chance of that out there there hasn't been that much intrigue into that that area i mean yeah i mean there again going back to the preservation bias sauropods definitely like if you think about it they're fossil like they're bones they're huge they're dense they're very solid mm -hmm. they would preserve very easily yeah they can i mean you would find them barely i don't want to say find them because that's one thing but they would preserve very easily because it's harder to break them since yeah. they're so massive and dense but something like Compsognathus, Archaeopteryx, even pterosaurs where they have smaller hollow bones because it flies or it soars or just tiny in general. They're harder to find. They're harder to preserve. So there's like God knows how many species that just like we will never know about because their bones just couldn't preserve. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is an interesting thing, the whole preservation bias part. I mean, it, it's kind of why pterosaur, pterosaur bones are so rare to extract and so difficult to extract. I mean, it's just the way that they were preserved. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there have been some pretty good pterosaur discoveries out here in the Pure Shale. Um, and the shale formations, which was an ocean at the time. Um, hmm. Yeah, near, uh, again, near Buffalo Gap, South Dakota, there, if you go to the South Dakota School of Mines Museum, they have some really nice pterosaur wings on display that were found in these oceanic deposits, which is like, you know, they were flying around the ocean, scooping up fish maybe, or feeding on smaller pterosaurs. Um, and they die and they float to the bottom of the ocean and they're preserved immaculately sometimes. That is a very rare feature and that's primarily because of that preservation bias. It's They don't have to deal with as much weathering, as much... They do have to deal with erosion because, I mean, that's probably something that happens very rapidly on the bottom of the ocean. But, yeah. I mean, the weather doesn't affect them. They don't have to deal with wind. They don't have to do... If they sink really far to the boat bottom, I mean, I'm sure a lot of predators don't go down that deep. So, yeah, they don't have to deal with scavengers because, I mean, that can definitely affect it. Yeah, better chances of preservation there. That's for sure. You get tectonic plates will carry some dinosaurs in two different areas that might split up a fossil, but then you also have predators of or predators of the time that might have scavenged. So. If T-Rex was needed to scavenge and they came across a dead triceratops, they're going to be like, well, rip the leg off and carry it all the way over here and start eating it. Mm -hmm. In case there's another T-Rex or some bigger species that we don't know about. I mean, you can see it in modern animals. Like coyotes will take parts of cow apart and carry it off. I mean, they won't just stay in one area yeah yeah I, I definitely see that a lot out out fossil hunting you know there will be a cow that one year it's mostly complete and then the next year it's just a rib cage and a head carried off and then 
you know, as weather gets to it, all the ribs will scatter and the vertebrae will scatter and begin to break down. So, yeah, it's not just it's like it is the ecosystem, but it's not 100% natural like tectonic plates and weathering. Yeah. It's sometimes other other creatures. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you say you're you said you're mostly in the field. So do you have any crazy, exciting, interesting stories you'd like to share from that? Um Yeah, I mean I I don't know. I guess just it's it's become normal to me, but like there's so many there's so many like I don't know. The things that stand out for me besides the fossil discoveries are, is like the extreme weather in the field. Hmm. Um, and I guess that might not be something you want to talk about, but no, that for me, that's what, that's what kind of stands out. You know, the instances where you're up on a butte and there's not supposed to be any rain all day, but you see, you see off in the distance, just a big rainstorm coming right at you and, and you know, okay, time to batten down the hatches and cover up the dig site. And that does affect fossils because yeah, if you start to expose some, maybe they're not going to be used to weathering. So yeah, that's always something. And yeah, sure that's that always something you're thinking about, like digging, um, digging channels in the site for good water drainage because sometimes sometimes it's unavoidable you're going to get flooded out um but as long as your bones aren't sitting at in the bottom of a basin you know they they it's not good for fossils to get wet especially these dinosaur fossils um but if you can avoid them being soaked that's a good thing for sure i mean yeah there was actually um there was this one time that we were out digging um at one of my sites in south dakota and we just get this wicked rainstorm like out of nowhere you know it was actually a derecho that's one that's an event where like this um i think it's like right on the end of a high pressure system so it, it can be just a, a clear day and then you get this wall cloud that's right on the edge of the system and and that comes with 60 70 miles an hour winds oh. and it just races across the prairie and so yeah, we, you know, we were digging just beautiful day, mid, mid August. Um, and, and then we see this wall cloud coming and I knew instantly that it was a derecho. So we, you know, we, and, and they, they come very fast. Um, yeah, I can imagine. And so, you know, we tried to get all the tarps on, we tried to get our, um, uh, awnings you know because we dig with awnings you don't want sun beating on you all summer um, I get that. and uh and then you know that just the torrential rain and hail comes and so we we get in the truck and you know it it just came it just destroyed my awning it it carried my tent off about 50 yards snapped a few poles um and with these derechos, like you can watch them, you can almost see the other side, like the blue sky as it's hitting you. Is it? So this one. See the whole storm. 
Yeah, it's like a just a wall cloud. You can see it. You know, it, it just disappears into the horizon <laughs> on both sides of you. Seems oh. like a very unique phenomenon that doesn't. Yeah, happen. yeah. Look into that. Derechos are very interesting. Um, but yeah, so you know, this thing is just hitting us, destroying our tents, sixty mile an hour wind. But we have like blue skies on one side. Um, <laughs> And then this this phenomena that happened, and I, I have not been, I have tried researching it, I've tried looking into it. So after the derecho hit, you know, the wind's coming at us 60 miles an hour. And then just as it's about, you know, like right above us and um, just about passing, the wind the winds reversed and it was blowing the opposite way, like 60 it just miles. back at y'all? Yeah, well, like the... No, I'm not done. <laughs> yeah, the, the wow. rain, it was interesting because the derecho was past us, the rain was past us, but the wind reversed. It was like a dry wind. Wow. Oh, wow. It, it was not done with your dig site. No. So, like, you know, my awning was just, like, flapping in the wind during the derecho, you know, like 60 miles an hour, just torn up. And then as it, you know, it, as it kind of, the rain petered off, it like went limp. And then it was just the opposite way, 60 miles an hour. And <laughs> I, I have, it was, it was not done with your dig site. No, no. And yeah, so that's something I haven't, it's a phenomena that I have not been able to find anything about a wind reversal like that. I'm very sure uh, Duration is like a very, I don't want to say rare, but it probably isn't as common no, yeah, maybe once every two years. So you get, yeah, like one every two years, and then the like one in a million chance that it just turns around on you, and yeah, turns back at you. It's like, uh, yeah, quite unique. Yeah. Maybe you should play the lottery, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, so would you like to uh talk on some of your discoveries? I mean, yeah, so um. You know, you can uh, you can go up, you can basically go out into like any of these badlands, and you're gonna find chunks of bone. Um, you might find a decent bone eroding out. Um, so, so there's a lot of dinosaurs out here. Um, I haven't really made any anything too scientifically important. Um, I I wouldn't even say I have found anything very scientifically important. Um, but you know, I've worked on a few triceratopses. Um, it's always fun. They're cool. Yep. And you know, you have to prepare them and you know uncover all the dirt, and that's where you might find something new and exciting about the creature. Um, I'm actually working on a triceratops with um, with one of my businesses, Dakota Valley Paleontology. Um, with my partner Carlton Baird, um, and we we are excavating a Triceratops, and it has some really unique features to it. It has um, it has massive brow horns, about huh. just a hair under three feet long. So that's like you know, pretty that's enormous. It. Yeah, it's, it's um, it has. But weird thing about this site, the whole animal's disarticulated. And the skull is all disarticulated, so that means it wasn't fused together like an old aged animal. Um, 
And so, it, you know, it, it has these weird features of massive horns, unfused, small, you know, the maxillas are very small on it. Huh. Um, I found a part of the frill and it has a very peculiar hole in it. It's like, it's not like a, quite like a Taurosaurus. It might be, but um, huh. yeah, it's just like a hole about that big and it doesn't appear to be pathological. Um, so, so, you know, that's one of those things where you gotta, you gotta quarry the site for three years to come up with the whole skull. And then you put it, the skull together and that's when you start to realize some of these really unique features of it. So, I mean, yeah, it's not something that's, so could it be natural or could it be like, could it be like some kind of weird birth defect? Um, I mean, no, I, yeah, no, I, I think it's something unique. I don't think this creature like got hit in the back of the head when it was little and now it's developing weird. I, I do think it's truly a unique triceratops that we're digging. In. Huh. It, it could be, it could be a birth defect. There's a chance maybe it's, um, it could be some type of torosaur or maybe a new type of triceratops. Um, that would be exciting. Yeah, the, the nose horn on it is just small, very small. It doesn't look like triceratops um, Herodis or prosis. Hmm. So yeah, massive brow horns, weird frill, tiny nose horn, small maxillas. It's a very unique creature that we're digging on. I mean, I, I kind of hope it is a new species because that'd be very interesting. And yeah, yeah. Very, very exciting. So yeah, I mean, yeah. So this site, um, we call it the brick house because it's it's preserved in a in a strange um, river, like a river system, um, and it it has layers of you know it'll be like an inch of sand, an inch of clay an inch of shale, an inch of sand, an inch of clay. Oh. And so that that produces these bricks of sediment. Like, I've never seen anything so difficult to dig in the Hell Creek Formation. Um, You're like you know, sometimes you'll get dinosaurs that are preserved in, like, iron in the Hell Creek, but... Oh, wow, that would be... But this is actually, it's just preserved under these bricks. And, like, really the only way to uncover it is to... You stick shims into the layer and try to split these bricks off. Um, Basically, just try to pry it off and then you just... Yeah, the, realistically, that's the only way this dinosaur can be excavated. Oh. You know, you, you can't dig this thing up carefully. like, and, and, you know, I mean, carefully. I'm a very careful field paleontologist, so, like, I'm not just going in there. I, I know where the bones are preserved among this layer. So... You know, above that, we'll be digging with crowbars, pickaxes. Um, but then you get to the, the layer where you know the fossils are going to be. And then you slow, you slow down a little bit. You use some different tools. You shift gears. Um, Switch up the tools. Be a little bit more gentle. Yeah. yeah. But, like, but above that, man, this is – oh, and we also use hammer drills at this site. It's just yeah, – yeah, it is – a truly unique Hell Creek formation there. I mean, it could be a Taurosaurus. It could be some weird birth-deformed Triceratops. I mean, 
It could be a completely new species. That seems. Yeah. I mean, until you like really fully excavate it, I mean, there's not going to be a definitive answer until. Yeah, and and we do have the brain case, which is very important oh. identification. So yeah, we got um. We have the brain case. We have a few parts of the frill. We have both lower jaws. We have one one of the maxillas. Um, we have part of the upper beak, the rostrum. We got the nose horn, um, both brow horns. Um, and I think that's it for the skull. We found a, a good amount of postcranial, you know, vertebrae, ribs. But the site has mostly produced cranial elements, which is interesting. So that's what we're hoping for, more of that. You know, maybe the frill. Lower beak will tell us a lot about the animal, the jugals. We don't have either of the jugals yet. So, hmm. yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun digging there. And it truly does feel like we're on something unique with this site. So, that seems like a very unique find. I mean, yeah. Doesn't seem like that something like that happens every day. I mean, no, no. And like I've, I've dug on a few other triceratopses where it's like, okay, this is kind of the standard triceratops. And, you know, I I can identify this as a triceratops pretty easily. Yeah. I mean, so other than that, Mister Mystery Ceratopsian, do you have any other rare finds um, or unique circumstances? Yeah. So so when I was out um, with one of my businesses, LNL Paleontology, with my partner Sean Larson, um, we dig in the Lands Creek Formation. That's where we focus on for that business. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the Lands Creek Formation, it can be kind of sparse. Um, you know, with a lot of big, like, wind-carved buttes and, like, big sandstone layers where you won't find anything. And then there will just be, like, one little layer of clay where you find a bunch of fossils. Um, yeah, I mean... So we, we were out. I think this was... Um, it was late in the season, maybe like October of last year. And and I found these these pieces of, of ankylosaur scoot, or actually notosaur scoot. Um, and and so they were uh, and you can you can always tell notosaur because the bone is different. They grow slower. Um, very dense bone with kind of like a it all you know, like a burl, like wood, it, it'll have like very interesting patterns in it. So, and calcer bone looks like that a lot of the time. Um, and so, you know, we start digging on these scoots and, and we think that it's like two separate scoots. Um, and as we uncover, as we uncover them more, we kind of found out that it was two fused neck scoots. So like it made up, um, if you look at a notosaur skeleton, they have this kind of like a neck yolk. Um, huh. And it's like four scoots that are fused together. Um, and uh, and so, you know, that that was a big discovery. Notosaur is very rare. Um, and then on top of that, to find those scoots is extremely rare. Um, so So that was that. It was a good discovery. We're very happy with it. Um, and we went back the next year, this, the beginning of this year, um, 
you know, to hopefully find more of this animal because it's um, Notosaur is so much more rare than T-Rex. It's probably the one of the most rare large dinosaurs that you can find in the Hell Creek Formation. I can, I can probably imagine. Um, just slow gestation. That's kind of the leading theory. They were like, you know, they just didn't mate that often. It probably took longer for them to... They seem very solitary animals. Yeah, solitary. Um, so we were very excited about this site. Um, and we, we went back there to quarry it out. We dug probably like six feet back. We didn't find a single scrap. You know, we were kind of dejected and disappointed. And, and so in this site, this whole valley for that matter, it's all, it's all mudstone, claystone, um, with very little sandstone and, and like no concretions. So you can basically assume like it's all soft dirt as opposed to like this hard, you know, sandstone. Um, and in the Notosaur site, there was this rock off to the side of the site that we always, you know, we thought it was a little peculiar. Um, some very one-off kind of random yeah kind of one-off but we really didn't put too much thought into it because you know we were trying to find a notice or a skull like we we're we were we just had visions of grandeur we, we really thought we were going to find something cool at that site um and and so we were like all right well i guess we'll expand the site a little bit to the side it's time to destroy this rock you know this concretion see what's um, there. yeah or to see what's under it and and we kind of we kind of chipped off a little bit of the top of it, and exposed some of the side, and we realized it was a sandstone footprint. <laughs> yeah, a, an enormous footprint. Um, and it, it's actually from an Edmontosaurus. So yeah, it's and you know a lot of the times with footprints you'll find the positives, where where they'll be in like a. Um, or, or I mean the negatives, when they'll be, you know, like in like a wall. Down. Yeah, and the, and like you'll see the imprint. But with this particular example, you know, because I said it's all soft dirt, mudstone, so it, it stepped down into the mud, and then it, you know, there was a depression, and then in that footprint came some sand. Huh. And so it filled in. It's a um, a footprint cast. And then on top of it, more mud accumulated. So it was—it's just this isolated, just like random chunk of like sandstone. Yeah, and um, it's it's enormous. I took it up to a uh, Pete Larson at Black Hills Institute. He took a, a scan of it. He was very intrigued. Um, and yeah, he said it's it's one of the bigger examples of a, a monosaur footprint. Um, it's 28, 28 inches across. Wow. And 32 inches long. So, so that thing was massive. Enormous. Probably a 40, a 45 foot long Edmontosaur. As wow. big as it. Yeah. That's a very unique situation to come in there. And yeah. And so, so after that, our kind of our uh, focus shifted on the site because Pete Larson said, well, if there's one footprint here, 
There's probably more. There's probably one behind it. And so we went and he showed me a few documents of um, large hadrosaur trackways. And we figured out that a hadrosaur stride is approximately nine feet from heel to toe. Hmm. And yeah. and so then, you know, we went back there. We were hoping to find more. We, we quarried nine feet further back. And we didn't find another footprint unfortunately so that was the only footprint it i think so yeah we, we we dug nine feet back six feet to each side we were really hoping for another one but huh. you know and and maybe the uh maybe it was just a a little 10 foot wide creek at the time with some notosaur bones in it because the footprint was like nearly above these bones so wow so, like, if you just want to theorize on what happened, like, it was a little creek with some, like, mud in the bottom. And a few, no like, the noticer was already dead. It was already scattered. It and very well could have been that since that's, like, the only footprint you found, it was a very unique situation where it was just, like, mud and there's a little bit of sand up here. And when it stepped into it, the sand just had to fall into it because of gravity. Yeah. And – it just stepped over all of the mud and into like just normal sand and just kept walking. So, yeah, I mean, that's always a possibility too. It's just a very unique situation to happen. So, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. So that's one of the more um, <clears throat> just super random discoveries that I've made. Um, just, like, all right. We found a, a notosaurus. Oh, this is cool. Cool. Oh, wait, that's an Montessor right there. Yeah. I'm just completely switch focus and, uh huh. Change it up. Yep. Yeah, and in that, you know, when we were looking for the other footprint, we were like, "Well, there's a good chance we'll find more notosaur elements." This gives us an excuse to expand the pit a little bit, but not a single other bone, unfortunately. So it was a very not small, but very cut off part of the notosaur. Yeah, it was quite an isolated little site. Yeah, which is kind of odd to think i mean it could have been that since it could have died in a creek and washed away and somehow something scavenged it and the bone got weakened and disgustingly enough part of it split apart and kept going yeah down a creek or a river i mean there are very unique circumstances and sadly there's no it's no way to go see what happened yeah, unfortunately. Just go back in time, see where the dinosaur dies, and come back now, and you're like, right there. Every single time I find a fossil. Yeah. I've definitely sat around the fire talking about that with people. You know, like, mm -hmm. gosh, if only we could see where the T-Rex died, you know. I'd then be we very could some equipment. Unique ability. And you would you would have to become a paleontologist. I mean, yeah, yeah. If you had that knowledge, there would be no other choice. I mean, it's like I have bone detecting powers. <laughs> I mean, like, okay, want to come out to my quarry and see what you find? Yeah, right. I mean, be a heck of an ability for a paleontologist. Yeah, that would be incredible. That I mean. So uh, I know you're a busy man. You probably got places to be and things to do. Yeah. I guess I'll let you go. All right.
Well, it was good talking with you, Eric, and um, good luck with your podcast. And I maybe I'll be able to hook you up with some of my colleagues and whatnot. That would be some more podcasts. Greatly appreciated. Thank Definitely. you for coming on. I mean, yes, it's always just a pleasure just having the ability to talk to somebody who just does what I want to do. So, mm -hmm. yeah, stay in touch. If you come out here, Definitely. we'll have to we'll have to go on a dig. I'll take you out. That would be awesome. I mean, that's basically my dream, and I'm trying to just work towards that. So, yeah. I mean, so I guess I'll let you go. All right. I'll stay in touch. Yep. Nice talking, Eric. We'll see you. Nice talking to you, too. So, that was the Rex Creek Discoveries field paleontologist. Amazing guy. Be that way. No, it's that way. Go check out his Instagram. It should be right there. I don't know. This is probably going to come out horrible in actual footage. Go check it out. I mean, you got a lot of great stuff right here. So that looks so goofy. Yeah, go, go, go check it out, man. He's got a lot of great content. So please go check that out. And very amazing dude. Very kind. So glad that he could actually come onto the show and talk to me and everyone who's listening. Cause I'm sharing this experience with all of you. So, I mean, please return the favor of him coming on and go, go check out his content. It's right there. So yeah, as you can see, he's posts a lot of a great stuff about fines and as a huge Tyrannosaur tooth. And while you're on there, go ahead and, Got a load, got a load, got a load. Go ahead and while you're checking that out, go check out the Prehistoric Life Podcast Instagram page. That's where I post all of the uh, knowledge, knowledge, all of the exclusive content. That's where you get reminders. That's where you know about podcast episodes coming up, interviews, special videos, basically whatever I'm going to do for the week. I try to post on there and talk about somewhere on there but i mean and if you really want all of the content in one place please go check out the website because that is where all of it is displayed on here you can see all of the interviews all the special videos you can go check out the youtube and the instagram and from there you can get to the youtube and instagram and that's where I plan on if I ever do fossil sales or merch, that's where all of that will be. So please go check that out. And also while you're down there checking things out, you might as well go subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. I try to post everything early on there. I post some uh, shorts and that's where all those, all, all those, all the videos try to, I try to put them up early. As you can see, and I'm filming this really early because this episode hasn't even come out yet and it will be out by the time I upload this and you can definitely tell. So go check out the YouTube, the Instagram, the website for all of the combined information. And until next time, I'm your host, Eric Crawford. I will see you all next time, and remember, keep it prehistoric. Goodbye.
Thank you.